Hello, greetings and welcome. I'm John Gibbons and this is Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. It's great to have your company, whether you're a long-term or a first-time listener, and we really hope you enjoy the show. We're free and on demand from iTunes and alchemyradio.net, and you can follow us and join the Alchemy community on Facebook and Twitter. So don't be shy, we love when people say hello. We exist, of course, thanks to your kind donations, so thank you to everybody who does so via our website. We're completely non-profit and intend to stay that way, so anything that you can help with is greatly appreciated. So, on to the show. Today's guest is Tobias Churton. Tobias is a leading authority on Gnostic spirituality. He holds a master's degree in theology and was appointed honorary fellow and faculty lecturer in Western Esotericism at Exeter University in 2005. Tobias is also a filmmaker, a poet, composer and the author of many books, including The Gnostics, Gnostic Philosophy, The Babylon Gene and biographies of William Blake and our primary focus for today, Alistair Crowley. Tobias, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are things? I'm very well, thanks, and it's a delight to be with you. Well, the delight is all mine, trust me. And uh, we were speaking off-air about devil's advocates and that kind of thing with regard to questioning and interviewing style. And I think it's quite apt because we will be talking about Alistair Crowley, who is a fascinating individual, and there are very few on God's green earth, or (laughs) Satan's green earth, or whoever's green earth we want to talk about, who know more about Alistair. But before we do that, I'd like to know a little bit about you, Tobias. So for those who aren't familiar with your work, there's a question I ask everybody who comes on the show, and that's how did you get from where you were and you can go as far back as you like to where you are now oh um what a impossible question <laughs> uh, i was born deaf <laughs> so i had the pleasure of not hearing what the world had to say for the first three years of my life and i think this marked me out <laughs> i think it would have done <laughs> and uh i've i've I'm, i've always been uh, very open-minded uh to spiritual things ever since I can remember. Mm. And that sort of shaped the direction my life took. Um, I wanted to be Archbishop of Canterbury and a film director when I was younger. Um, maybe both or one or the other. But as, it, as it's turned out, I've done one and narrowly ruined my chances of the other. And do you still aspire to the other? <laughs> no. I've, I've, I, you only have to look at the fools that, who are becoming Archbishop. The, <laughs> To, to realise I haven't missed much there. He doesn't exactly. have much authority, but if I'd been in the position, perhaps I'd been able to do something with it. As for film director, I, I've decided that Orson Welles is simply impossible to beat, and um, that job has been done for me. So I'm sort of left with writing and uh, and music. And so my, my feeling is how to express the inexpressible. And that's what I've made in my life since uh, leaving university, is is to try and give form and meaning to the lost spiritual traditions of the Western world. And it's brought you down a very interesting path and quite a wide-ranging path as well, because you've written extensively on Gnosticism, which is a subject we would like to speak with you at length at a later date. But uh, what was it that led you specifically down that path? And where does Alistair Crowley come into things? 
Uh, I th- I th- when I was an undergraduate at Oxford in the late 70s, I had to do a routine theological essay on the Gnostics. And by the time I'd done that, I think I'd also heard about Alistair Crowley because I used to go mountaineering. That was my hobby at the time, my late teens. And I went to, it was the Oxford Mountaineering Society. And somebody was talking about Chris Bonington's hero, this fellow Alistair Crowley, a noted climber. And on that basis, I took an interest. When a friend of mine gave me a copy of his confessions, I was even more intrigued because he was not only a climber, but also a mystic and wrote very convincing and wonderful prose, I thought, about the whole issue of man in relation to invisible powers of the universe. And he put it in such a way uh, that impressed... um, the the mind of a would-be philosopher who was looking for some spiritual meat but expressed by somebody of great intellect. Uh, very often uh, spiritual things tend to be the work of enthusiasts whereas Crowley was an intellectual so that impressed me. So when I came to write this essay on Gnosticism I had already in my mind I think some idea that Gnosticism was not a, a historical artifact from the second century AD as, as theology demanded, I see it, as mm. a heresy, but it was a kind of living tradition amongst peculiar, uh, peculiarly remarkable minds. And I've always been interested in original intellects, uh, people who walk their own path intellectually, but have the ability to rationalize what they're experiencing. I thought Crowley was remarkable in this respect. So Crowley Gnosticism was sort of bound up these are people I felt something in common with. And um, so I must have been a Gnostic from birth, I think. Uh, so you could say, well, in that case, Toby, you're not capable of objective analysis of this subject. You're too committed to it. And I can only say to that, well, I'm pretty well trained in objective analysis and self-criticism. And it's always been a struggle with this subject. It's not like I believe in it. It's, it's For me, it's always been... I've been criticised by other Gnostics for being too rational about it. Um, but I'm, I'm always trying to put myself in the dock and challenge myself with the thoughts, is this right? Is this true? Does this work, actually? Um, are you fooling yourself? Are you being fooled? So I think I'm in a pretty good position. I don't think you can understand anything unless you've experienced it. Well, I think Probably. so. I've, I've found that in my own life. I mean, we can be told things until the cows come home, but we, it doesn't really sink in until we've gone through it. That's right. I remember I was thinking about my, my, my own uh, child uh, first experiencing a death of a member of the family and mm. um, uh, she just didn't know how to react, of course, as you don't when you're little. And it's only later when you, you, somebody very close to you dies that you start to appreciate the, yeah, the sadness and all the rest of it. Mm. So, yes, I think experience of the heart is what counts. Uh, and then you, rationally, then you think about it. It's a natural stage to think about things that happen to you. So uh, all my interest really is thinking about things that have happened to myself and the broad culture out of which I've uh, emerged. And would you see Gnosticism almost as a decoding device then to, uh, I suppose, put some kind of frame of reference on feelings or experiences? Well, that's an interesting way of putting it. I, I, I remember thinking... At, when I first studied it officially and under the uh, tutor's eye that um, these people weren't doing what their enemies thought they were doing. They really weren't trying to construct a uh, theology to challenge orthodoxy. They weren't that interested. They, I think Jung ha- 
Carl Jung, the psychologist, had quite a good idea when he saw their importance to psychology. They were, as I saw it, they were trying to draw a map of the mind and the way that the imagination uh, uh, operates with regard to spiritual experience. And so they weren't producing a sort of systematic, logical theology in the Catholic sense. If When I think of the Catholic sense, I think of um, the tradition of Tertullian and the Patristic Fathers, mm. uh, which is very well represented at the Vatican, for example, today, where they tried to produce a sort of legalistic formulation of man, his place in the universe, and what's good for him. Uh, the Gnostics uh, aren't going to that kind of authority. They're looking at their inner experiences of what it actually existentially feels to be alive in this world. And uh, Carl, uh, no, Hans Jonas, another fine philosopher who I met in the 80s, long dead now, but um, was, was a great uh, scholar of Gnosticism, and he saw them as the first existentialists. And I think all that chimes in with the kind of spiritual distress of our era, where authority in religion, legalistic presentations of religion, um, may have power over the simpler minds, but a large number of educated people have come about who are looking for a more, um, not only more rational system, but one which speaks to their experience. So I think Gnosticism comes alive in all of that. And uh, promoting that awareness and encouraging it is, 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 is part of the task of, of what I try to do, which is to make information available in the best way I can. Let's go on to Alistair Crowley then, because he's... A fascinating individual. For those who don't know anything about him, we'll go into that. But he has been dubbed, I suppose, the wickedest man in the world is what springs to mind whenever I hear Alistair Crowley mentioned. So, Tobias, who was Crowley? And give us a little bit about his background for those that don't know. Alistair Crowley was a remarkable uh, phenomenon of the late Victorian age. Uh, one can't imagine him emerging in any other period quite in the way he did. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't really of his time at all in, in, in certain respects. He was terribly advanced uh, in his humour and thinking. He would have found Monty Python perfectly acceptable uh, entertainment. Might have, thought, <laughs> might have thought he was a bit laboured. Um, I think he, he, was, he was a hell of a wit himself. He was uh, brought up under the most strict Christian tutor, tutoring imaginable. He was a member of the exclusive Plymouth Brethren which I think started in Dublin, actually, in about the 1830s under John Nelson Darby and had spread to England with the doctrine that every word of the King James Bible is absolutely and literally true and every single word can be applied to every situation a person finds themselves in. So that Crowley was, was immersed in biblical literalism to the extent that he wasn't allowed to play with other children uh, who, who were not brethren children. And they had to be the right brethren children too, not just any Plymouth brother, they had to be part of the exclusive group. So these people thought of themselves as extraordinarily superior Christians and looked down on the Church of England, Catholics and everybody else's. I mean, they would have regarded today's fundamentalist biblical um, uh, advocates from the sort of southern states in the, in the popular image of that as, as woefully lax and banned for damnation. They weren't nearly fundamental enough. So Crowley had this repressive upbringing. But at the same time, his father was a self um, was in, lived the life of a gentleman off his own money and investments. He, he didn't work for a living. He was upper class. 
uh, in his lifestyle and very free. And his father was a preacher, traveling preacher, who funded himself and funded preaching books. So Crowley had all this Christian upbringing. He knew the Bible really backwards incredibly well. He could, he could quote vast chunks of it in a way which would astonish people probably today. There aren't many people who can, who can who with that facility today. But in his teen years, his father died when he was... Um, 12, if I remember right, 11 or 12. And he became dissatisfied with the way that the brethren had treated his father. They'd put him through a kind of wacky um, health uh, routine, an electrical instrument. He was experimental in, in the way that, um, sort of, very much on the principle of sort of like this, uh, what do you call the, the Christian scientists, you know, don't go to a straightforward doctor. Oh, no, no, no. All diseases can be cured by prayer and spiritual means, you know. Mm. Um, Crowley took it that his father had been murdered by these people. And as he said in his autohagiography, as he called it jokingly, um, he found himself sympathetic to what he called the enemies of heaven. And he found all, all the sort of dangerous characters of the Bible suddenly looked rather brilliant and, and interesting. Jezebel became a fascinating figure. Um, the beast of the apocalypse. Uh, there's this whole, he, start, he starts to imaginatively identify himself um, with the idea of that this great repressive Christianity that he was brought up with was crumbling. And as he advanced intellectually, which he, his main interest was science at this time, actually, scientific subjects, biology, but particularly chemistry, um, he, he thought that science was just going to whack all this stuff way, way out of the field and uh, be replaced by a sort of more rational humanistic faith. He discovered, as he said, cards and girls. That made a big impression on him. But when he was at university, he went to Cambridge, recommended by the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, and he was training to be a diplomat. And uh, he had a, a spiritual crisis. Um, two, two things seemed to have happened. One was a depression that came over him when he asked what is the meaning of life. What if he was the ambassador to some country or other, to St. Petersburg? Um, what, what did this mean ultimately? Would he, be, would he be known, remembered for anything he could do? Mm. And he started to see the world as the play of spiritual forces and that uh, the life worth living would have to be in consistency with spiritual forces and at the same time as he realized that he also had his first homosexual uh, serious homosexual experiences and that changed him uh, radically because he, he got so turned on literally he began to see sex as a magical uh, transformative experience and therefore could understand Victorian sex repression, which was represented by his mother. Anyway, all this is very theoretical. The fact of the matter is Crowley was a hell of a, a gas of a character, with immense uh, humour. He wrote um, pornographic stuff for a, for a joke in the 1890s, had it published in the decadent style using Aubrey Beardsley's Dutch publisher. I mean, he just wanted, you know, he was an éparté les bourgeois character, belonged sort of very much in the 1960s, if you like, or the 20s, proto-surrealist, um, Let's let's wake up, uh, uh, you know. Let's wake society up. This was what he wanted to do, and he, as he put it at one point, he, I, he wanted to liberate the boys and girls of England, and he, he felt that they were under a great repressive blanket uh, uh, of repression that, that needed to be removed, and he saw himself remarkably as the man who might be the servant of the powers for the liberation of mankind. Now, this is where, of course, you get the problem, because Crowley is conceiving himself in a Gnostic, as a Gnostic liberator, which 
to all the mainstream churches can only mean one thing. It means he's not working for uh, the the God of the Christian church. He's must therefore he must be working for the other side. Yeah. And uh, his first opposition came at Cambridge from the Cambridge University Intercollegiate Christian Union. And they were the first people to sort of uh, write against him, and that carried on all his life, and eventually creates this absurd mythology of him as as a as a as a demonic character as opposed to a daimonic character and, so the uh, boys and girls yeah. of england didn't react too kindly to uh, to his aspirations and to his no teaching. i think when the boys and girls have been able to get his stuff they love it you know <laughs> that's true today more than then um at the time he was having he, he inherited a fortune and was publishing his own books and uh and those who read them very often became his uh, followers acolytes and he, he basically invented a religion, Thelema. Uh, wasn't an entire invention. It was a it, what you'd call it um, a synthesis of what he thought was the best of the esoteric traditions. Mm. Um, and it, when people asked him about its meaning, he would quote Saint Augustine: "Love and do what you will." That's Augustine, not Crowley. And of course, that phrase has been. Uh, I suppose it's been regurgitated so many times or bastardized nearly that it has become associated with with him basically saying, look, do whatever it is you want to do to hell with the consequences and be as evil and bad as you can. And that's not entirely the case, is it? This is, as he said, uh, as often as it needed to, why can't they see the difference? I I never said do as thou wilt. Mm. It's do what thou wilt. It's a content of the true will. And of course the original phrase comes from the Catholic doctor and former monk Francois Rabelais, face ce qui c'est, it's the old French, face ce que voudras, do what you wilt, do what thou wilt, which was inscribed over the gate of the Abbey of Thelema in uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel in Rabelais' satirical novel. Crowley picks up on that idea and so Rabelais becomes a priest of this spiritual freedom if you read the account of the Thelemites in Rabelais you get a very clear picture of what Thelema is all about it's about people who've kind of grown up and just want to live a free decent life pursuing their proper goals in in life unhindered by stupid uh, judge, judgmental accusatory um, people around uh, interfering um, the, you could, if you wanted to put the most vulgar meaning to Crowley's uh, system, you would say it's mind your own business. And that is the goal of a life, is to find out what your business is and mind it. And that process of discovering your true will, or as Crowley once put in his diary in 1921, uh, when I am doing God's will, he says, or as I call it, my true will. Now, that's very important, isn't it? He didn't like talk about God because he said you shouldn't use words you can't accurately define. Hmm. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable statement since they're they're still arguing about the creeds today. People can't accurately define the word God. And so he said, my true will, by which he meant an elemental power in the human soul, uh, which has its own orbit, its own destiny. So it's, it's a romantic system. Now, we all want to believe, anyone who's seen Lawrence of Arabia, with a heart, is moved by the words, you know, Akaba, when he suddenly realizes 
his moment in history has come and he has to play that part. It's, a, it's, it's certainly the kind of moment that motivates me and should motivate, I think, all young people who are born for a purpose, not to become wage slaves. That was the kind of society Crowley was absolutely against, was the great machine that he saw developing in the late 19th century uh, England and being foisted on the empire of the great industrial uh, machine. Now, that's what we have today. The, we, the world is made up of multinational companies which are dictating, slowly but surely, the form of education, news, and concepts of life that are appropriate for their uh, uh, trip into money-making heaven. And Crowley stands against that uh, concept of life. He doesn't stand against people setting up companies and doing wonderful things, but it's the encroachment on the inner life of the individual, uh, whether that comes from church, state, or what, whatever it is. He believed in the individual. He believed in, in man. That's, that's, he, that's what he stood for. And he was a magician in the sense that, say, Simon Magus, uh, who was also lambasted in the Acts of the Apostles, he's, he's a magician in the fullest sense, not a stage joker, uh, but a major, uh, you know, the wise men who came to worship Jesus were the, the Magoi, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, mm. Magi came to worship. And it, that was the tradition that he wanted to be part of. He wanted to revive magic, uh, which you would say is a totally romantic and impossible thing. Magic has such a bad name. Uh, if you had any of the current scientific apostles on, from Stephen Dawkins to the guy who presents the programs about outer space and tries to make it all sound fantastic... Um, you know, they would say magic is a remnant of our ignorant pre-scientific past, whereas anyone who knows the history of magic will understand that science as we know it is in fact a branch of magic. A bold statement and deeply unwelcome, I dare say, but uh, I can't help it. That's history. you only got to find out what Isaac Newton was reading and obsessed with when he was doing his calculations on gravity. But they like the gravity, but they don't like the magic. And that's the problem with a lot of modern science. And we touch on it quite a bit on this show with various guests and interviewees. Magic has become, and I think through the mainstream media and popular culture or whatever, it's become this something to be laughed at almost or scoffed at or discounted when, in fact, the vast majority of modern science as we know it actually has its roots in magic. So could you define what you think magic is or what Crowley thought magic was as opposed to this image we have of i don't know a disney cartoon and witches and wizards and this stereotypical magic that most kids are presented and i suppose the stereotype that remains with most adults then because of the foundation as kids well crowley defined magic in several ways the most famous way he said it was the um, art and science of causing changes to occur in nature uh, in accordance with will. So it's about the activation of the will. Mm. Uh, now, the purpose of that is to do the true will. So it's, it's simply about the ability to do. Pouvoir, as the French would say. Why, you know, the ability to do. That's what magic is. So it's uh, quite universal. Now, there are departments of it and aspects of it, some uh, which are... You know, today I don't suppose we'd hang spiders around our neck to cure ourselves of a sore throat like Elias Ashmole in the 17th century would. Um, that would have been called magic. Most of the magic we have today, we call technology and science. 
But there is an aspect of the higher magic was to do with the spiritual life. And that was the reserved area for the, the greatest practitioners. So, but all these, all these levels of magic are, can get confused. And our problem is, as you've already indicated, that since the scientific revolution, 17th uh, to 19th century, magic has been the baby thrown out with the bathwater mm. as we've emerged from medieval concepts of demonic powers, you know, forever trying to poke us with the tridents. So Crowley wanted to restore a grander and uh, pre-Christian um, idea of magic as, as the great art of life. And uh, so magic is, in order to do the magic that Crowley talks of, uh, the highest form of magic, you have to ally it to mysticism, generally, as we call it, which is the discipline whereby you attain to spiritual states of mind. Then in that state of mind, you may do your magic, i.e. your will. I mean, he, he gives a lovely example that um, I, want to, I want to impress somebody's mind. I want to get them to do something. I take my magical weapon. It's called a fountain pen. I use my magical medium, which is not ectoplasm. It's a piece of paper. I apply my thoughts to the pen. I make my wand do what I want on the paper. I put it in an envelope, send it to the appropriate recipient. And uh, if you do it well and correctly, you will get a result. Now, that's the simplest idea I can say of magic. But there are other aspects, like the quality of activity. When we say something is magical, oh, that was a magical day. Mm. And I remember being watching the Rolling Stones at Glastonbury uh, the year before, was it last year, wasn't it? Um, and just thinking, that is magical. Although my wife, who's actually there, standing at the far back, couldn't hear it, so it wasn't very magical for her. <laughs> but I, I got it. I was watching it in the comfort of televisual heaven, and uh, it was very magical to me as I saw something of the old England suddenly light up as Michael Evis's face also lit up. Everyone felt that there was really some magic and and some sympathy for the for the daimon uh, very much there mm. uh, great great art has this magical quality it's it's the ability to transform things to higher levels and to get to grips with them so our whole culture is suffering from kind of uh, loss of spirit isn't it it's uh, jim morrison wandering wandering like souls forgot um do you know we exist? Uh, have you forgotten the keys to the kingdom? Have you been born yet and are you alive? Let's reinvent the gods, all the myths of the ages, celebrate symbols from deep elder forests. You know, you have that in the doors who are picking up on William Blake's mode of re-entering the imaginative power of mankind and uh, humankind, as is uh, more appropriate to say these days. And that's what we're about. We're about waking up the human being to his potential. Young people most certainly want to know about this sort of thing before they get swallowed up and the, the bars grow against the growing boy, as Wordsworth, you know, that the bonds, we get tied up, tied down, like the parable of the, the seed, you know. All that wonderful human potential, it gets, gets thrown away, cast and wasted. And yet Crowley is the demon. <laughs> But uh, I see the spiritual wasteland of modern life as, uh, as, as demonic in the, in, I'm using that word in a purely uh, sort of romantic or uh, mm. descriptive sense. I see, you know, whose is the kingdom of Satan? <laughs> you know, where, is, where is this self-egotistic, uh, uh, monstrous world? Where's that? What's all that about? You know, we watch it on TV. 
we think it therefore it's separate from us we can switch it off but it's it's all about us our culture is going through amazing change it may be that Crowley's right and we are moving inevitably through the unconscious towards the uh, a new era of uh, spiritual revolution it may be that we are in the final phases of man's uh, sad sojourn on the planet i don't know uh, i i'm definitely for the spiritual revolution <laughs> when a man's got nothing he better grab what's there you know i think i think we spiritual revolution is a, a phrase that keeps coming back to me it was crowley's phrase he said we need revolution at the root of life and so that's why sex was so important to him because he recognized that the, that the this sex wasn't just a sort of an adjunct to life it it is it's it's true magical power has is is not being expressed i mean i only have to think of the sort of porn uh plethora we have today of this sort of uh, bodies doing things mm. um but they're not getting anywhere <laughs> Just well, keep well doing you're, it. you're right. And I think in the popular media, and not just with pornography, but with the normalization of the earlier and earlier sexualization of people and how people have, are now coming to associate sex with something purely physical and sex for sex's sake. And I think particularly um, since kind of the 1970s, but it's been ramped up in this century and this decade through popular culture, in particular the music industry and Hollywood and that kind of thing. And I think Crowley's take on sex was very, very interesting because he saw it as something far more, as you've alluded to there, than purely two people seeking physical gratification. And it it, it was part of this magical aspiration that he had, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what, I mean, the new book, uh, The Beast in Berlin, is absolutely full of this. Um, He was 54, 55 when this was going on. He was in Berlin in the early 30s Mm. in in the most sexually liberated uh, cosmopolis, as I call it, in, in the world. And you get a glimpse there of what this sexual revolution uh, might have to offer in his personal behavior and in his uh, love affairs and, and relationships with a whole string of r- rather remarkable ladies <laughs> who were attracted to him hugely, even though he was he was physically not at his youthful best. He was quite portly, lost a lot of hair. But they found something about him irresistible. Mm. And, you know, read about the summer of 1931, it's breathtaking. He's meeting a new girl practically every day. And uh, he had a a big relationship with a 19-year-old artist from California, Hannah Yeager. And uh, that that really occupied him. He was mad. They were madly, madly in love and pretty mad with it. It's all in the book. And I describe there also what we mean by sex magic. It is described in, in the book, the actual technical uh, meaning of, of what we're talking about here it isn't sex for physical for the ego it's not it's not that it's an exaltation think of it as a sacrament a sacrament is to take an ordinary thing and raise it to a higher level and you see that in the eucharist with the bread and wine uh, raised up to to make a link with a heavenly dimension that's the concept um, that's a magical idea. In fact, I've almost found a letter from Crowley to, to the Archbishop of Canterbury asking for clarification on the meaning of the <laughs> Eucharist. Um, what he wanted was a statement from the Archbishop supporting his idea of, of the magical sacrament. But, of course, the, the Bishop uh, would, wouldn't bite, didn't want to go. <laughs> Interesting. But, uh, so sex for Crowley is a sacrament. It is the offering of the self, the total offering of the self. 
and uh, uh, to to if it was magical, then it was for a specific aim. The child of the of the encounter was the the will, which might be in his case uh, to promote his painting or whatever ever it was, or to mm. acquire the means to survive because he was living on next to nothing in Berlin for two years. But mind you, a lot of people in Berlin were in the same boat. Um, but he wasn't quite used to <laughs> levels of poverty, but he coped with it manfully. It's, it's an amazing story. His, his two years in Berlin are an amazing account. It's never been written before and illustrates, I think, the real man as opposed to this bogey man with the, the do-as-you-want philosophy crap that people imagine or some sort of desire to promote evil things and bad and I, I mean i will tell you that I, I spent a long time going through every page of crowley's uh, surviving letters diaries a huge amount of material in the warburg institute in london and never once did i get a feeling that i was encountering a perverse or psychopathic mentality as you would if you were reading the diaries of a murderer or a, a, somebody addicted to crime or sociopathy or you know one of these d bizarre horrible type people that some people like reading books about you know never ever get an unclean feeling with crowley there's always a kind of uh, fabulous and humorous freshness about it and uh, i don't want to there are so many things that are still being written about him, which uh, I wrote a, bio a complete biography of Crowley, which came out a few years ago. And I thought, well, that scotches all that once and for all. But, you know, they don't want to read it. Um, the reviews in the broadsheets of that book were all repeats of the same litany of Crowley's bad news, Crowley's bad news. And then they'd say something that this book's come out at the end of it. They don't want... They, it would appear that the mainstream guardians of opinion don't simply don't want to know the truth in this regard uh they just don't want to i do i i have my own theories you know <laughs> i remember john lennon used to talk about whoever our opposition may be in all their manifest forms opposition to spiritual knowledge is always done through others you know yeah. god forgives them for they know not what they do these people who oppose spiritual uh, knowledge and always do and it seems will uh, they are themselves dupes, but of course are far too proud to realise it. So, but you, you know, I, 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 I'm not going to go all through every, you know, did he mistreat women? Did he do this? Did he do that? Do the other? Read the biography. It's, it's, it's there. You'll find the facts as I found them, and I, I, I just what I found, I delivered, and uh, I checked my stuff and all the rest of it. So, so Cr Crowley clearly has very fine aspirations and they're well documented. He documented them himself. So where did this stereotypical image, I mean, was it purely a manufactured thing when people accuse him of being a Satanist and being completely evil? I mean, how, how did that come about considering the truth of the matter and the fact that he did document his own ideas and thoughts and philosophies every step of the way? Was it a complete cover up and how has it been maintained today? Because... Mm. We can't, okay, well, we can't try, get away. Go, before you go on, I'll, I'll have forgotten what your first bit was. Okay, go, go with that one. <laughs> um, I, I think it, it's, it, was, it was an accretion process. It's, the rolling, it's a rolling stone that just gathered more moss, if you like. Um, it, it, it starts with uh, opposition from religious evangelicals at Cambridge University and then extends to the Order of the Golden Dawn in London. He upset some of those members, not all. Some of them didn't like him. 
big personality, bold personality, very sexual personality. He was bisexual, by the way, in case I gave the impression that he was exclusively homosexual. He certainly wasn't. Mostly girls, occasionally a bloke. Um, he, he produced envy and astonishment, and he didn't watch his back. He was in many ways his own worst enemy. He honestly didn't believe that people would take this Satan stuff seriously. He, his whole thinking was so attuned to the modern scientific viewpoint that he, he, he thought that anybody who you know, could possibly think, think of him in Plymouth Brethren terms as the agent of you know, the horned one was, was either stupid or insane. So he, he didn't really take that. He was, he was interested in the views of uh, the most intelligent people of the culture. He was contemptuous of, of ordinary things. The newspapers that went against him were all the rags, the daily rags, you know, Daily Express, there was the looking glass. These were all cheap um, rags for people who could only just about read. So he, was, he, he just used to say, oh, you know, of course. <laughs> but he loved ribbing them at the same time. He loved taking the mick out of, uh, of the unthinking Christian. He, 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 he believed that uh, they were on the wrong track and he, he, he didn't mind telling them so. So he, he go, there was a lot of goading in his work. Yes, he was poking at the, at the, at the beehive. So he, you could say he asked for it. He was quite happy to sign himself as the Beast 666. But if anyone asked him, he said, well, why would you call yourself the Beast 666? He'd say, well, my mother called me that. <laughs> she said I was the Beast. And, um, you know, maybe she caught, caught him, you know, playing with himself or something. That would be the kind of situation which might... Uh, you know, generate that comment, but she, his mother, thought he'd been sent to try her. She, he was his only, he was her only surviving son, and he didn't go along with the the obsessions of her sect. Uh, so to her, he he was a great challenge, and I think he just he just he was very much in the spirit of the satirical spirit mm. of the you see in the late sixties. But nobody says Monty Python's satanic, but by God, they're, they're well, until the Life of Brian film, of course, um, <laughs> where, of course, they took, took the thing head on. And who was the chief backer of that film? Was it not George Harrison, one of the great believers of our, of our times? You know, uh, but the authoritative churches regarded that film as uh, an attack on their control of religious perception, and it was opposed on that basis. But even so, John Cleese was never called the devil um, and so on. So Crowley, on the other hand, didn't mind attract. I think he was a little bit in love with the idea of being of, of what he could do with fame anyway. Um, he tried to be, he thought that maybe being the, one of the, I think he was one of the two or three greatest mountaineers of his time, climbed K2, didn't get to the top, but he got the highest anyone ever had on that mountain, spent the longest up on it than anybody had ever ha held that record at that height on K2. Um, he solitary climb of the Eiger, but this didn't, nothing ever worked for Crowley in a way. Uh, whatever he did, uh, he'd, he'd have a terrible run of bad luck and uh, this went on throughout his life. I think if he was truly the devil's spawn, his life would have been very smooth and he'd have ended a wealthy and much-loved person, you know. Yeah. Uh, his, 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 his martyrdom is the mark of his seriousness. He really did suffer, poor thing. I mean, he did go through, he went through the mill. And all the women who, many of whom were very intelligent women who got to know him all said, you know, what this man goes through, the world will never realise. Um, so... 
but you say, how did it get going? Well, I think I, it, it just built up over, over the years through building up enemies because of the range of his beliefs, because he united sex with, with religion. And then threw in humor. Oh, my God. Humor, sex, religion. How dare he? It was, it was touching every raw nerve of the period. A lot of it today we would maybe not even notice. Mm. I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, uh, we're so he, re- he was almost a, a, a satirical pioneer in a sense. Oh yeah, a lot of his books were were, were deliberately. So there's one he called "Why Jesus Wept," <laughs> you know. And uh, he says he in his advertisement he wrote he says, "Come on, boys, you better read this before the second coming. <laughs> you better get it now. <laughs> it could be too late. <laughs> he may be back next week." You know, he he, he was very good at parodying uh, the tone and um, style of evangelical tracts of that period. And uh, that wouldn't have made him many friends either. Uh, no, I, I just think a man like him was who was so much ahead of his time. He was predicting the future. He was prophesying the future. And his prophecies, in my opinion, are almost all uh, spot on. Uh, he's, he was a reluctant prophet. He didn't want to be known as a prophet. But he didn't mind being... He, he had two, there were two Crowleys, really. There's the jester who, who plays with the world. And then there's the serious spiritual giant behind it. And one often is judging the other. Um, and he talked about, he said, people did, what did they, he said, that so-and-so has had a vision of the demon Crowley. He knew he had this, people, because they were so struck by him, they would project their unconscious fears onto him. And he could tell when this was happening. He'd say, you know, Norman's had a touch of the demon Crowley or so-and-so's got the vision of the demon Crowley. People would suddenly develop an enormous fear of him. And he couldn't control that. Um, Sometimes it was probably useful to protect him, uh, you know, from constant interference. Yeah. Um, but he does, and he still generates that in some people. I think people who've got deep religious or sex, especially sexual religious problems, um, Crowley is just just red rag to that bull, and there's nothing I can do. I could write fifty books stating the plain truth. It won't make any difference, you know. Mm. It's it's like some people couldn't stand Peter Cook. You know, remember Peter Cook, the wonderful comedian. Yeah. Some people just couldn't take it. There was something about him that that made that that, that disturbed people. Well, I think there's a huge cognitive dissonance that comes into play there and a collective cognitive dissonance, and people just prefer to avoid any kind of uncomfortable truth then. Yeah, well, we know that, don't we? And uh, there's the whole thing, the prophet is not without honour except in his own country. Crowley was very... Crowley didn't get all this flack when he was in Berlin. He didn't get it where he was taken seriously as an artist and exhibited the only English artist ever in that period to have his own exhibition in Berlin. And this wasn't something he generated out of his enthusiasm. This He was exhibited by Karl Nierendorf and uh, Alfo von Alfensleben, two of the biggest promoters of modern art in, in Berlin. Um you know, before the Nazis moved in and called them all degenerates, which in Crowley's case is, is particularly opposite in the sense that when we see Crowley being his work destroyed as it was, the Gestapo destroyed uh, some of his paintings, uh, when we see Crowley destroyed as a degenerate, we should think how that word, what that word meant in the 1930s and the fact that in Britain we obviously regard him as a degenerate in, in, in terms of the popular culture, which does that make our popular culture somehow in tune with the repressive powers of fascism? I suspect there's a, there's a curious link there. 
Uh, Crowley's play was on the intellect and through the arts of the imagination. And I think it was his dynamism in these areas and the radicalism of his thought that, that generates this, this, uh, this fear. Um, it's, it's still very prevalent in our so-called rational era. You know, I mean, you, you don't, if you want to find out if it exists, do what I've done and write about these things and see the reaction you get. You'll find, we're still in the dark ages. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting because you've mentioned the uh, the popular opposition to him, but then well, it's not you, popular in the sense. I won't say this. He's never had popular opposition. His opposition has never come from the people generally. You know, it's not like people uh, in general don't like Crowley. That's not the case. He has. He, he was. There were always specific areas of the enemy. Um, the Catholic Church, cert- certain Freemasons, no mm-hmm. question of that, uh, were desperate, desperately opposed to him. People in the Theosophical Society were desperately opposed to Crowley. And, and, uh, and, and people who were trying to make a buck out of public morals like Horatio Bottomley and um, DeWend Fenton, these were two newspaper producers uh, in, before the First World War. Bottomley was eventually imprisoned uh, for scurrilous activities using his newspaper, and which was one of those patriotic, jingoistic, uh, John Bull it was called, and that's what it was full of. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so find out who you find out who Crowley's opposition was at the time, and you'll see that he, he, he pe- pe- people who met him uh, loved him and adored him. When when he lived at a cottage in Knockholt in Kent in the thirties, the locals adored him. When when he was kicked out of uh, Sicily in 1923 by order of Mussolini, not our friend, I think. Um, instead of people saying, well, hang on, this was Mussolini that kicked him out. They say, ah, oh, he was kicked out. That just shows what an evil bastard he was. But actually, I found a petition in the Warburg from the villagers of Cefalu, t- townspeople of Cefalu, petitioning the government to let Crowley stay as they liked him so much and he was much respected and he'd been a great help to the community. Yeah, so it's establishment then rather than popular. Well, certain certain aspects of the establishment. There were other, you know, no one ever said a bad word about Crowley in the Times, for example. It was always the the crap press, you know. Mm. Go for it. He was. Uh, it was his celebrity. Of course, there was great jealousy. But I think when they found out they didn't have the money to defend himself, they went for the jugular. And um, you know, uh, that's that's really what people do. I, I always sometimes I feel I don't like defending Crowley because I think he should be asserted, not defended. Because I think he's he's one of the greats, you know. I, he's he's up there with with oh Blake, Byron, who, who you like, you know, the poets poets of the British Isles. We haven't talked about the Irish connection. He, Crowley, of course, is an Irish name, and his family had originally come from from Ireland. And I think that gave him a feeling that he wasn't totally if uh, destroyed by sort of if, what he called an effete English upper class culture. Um, he still had the rebel in him. You know, and uh, I think that was part of, also part of his self-belief and identity. He loved all that Celtic stuff that's now so popular, you mm. know, the mythology and, and, and all that. He, he, had, he, he, he appreciated what it was really saying, our link to nature as a magical link. And that, that's very, very interesting because I would come across, certainly here living in Ireland, quite a lot of people who would certainly uh, mirror your views on Crowley and it's to hell with what anybody else might say and there, there seems to be a huge interest in him in particular in Ireland and I have noticed it over the last couple of years and uh, it totally, totally ties in with what you're saying there and another area that I found a lot of, uh, a lot of love for Crowley is the music industry popular yes, music I mean you look at the Beatles Jimmy Page Red Hot Chili Peppers I mean they did, they did an album entitled Blood Sugar Sex Magic 
It seems to be that pop music, particularly the rock music of the 60s, 70s and the 80s, had an absolute fascination with the work of Crowley. Where did that come from? Is that something that just sprung up organically? I think you can probably trace it um, to to certain characters, people and environments. I mean, the Rolling Stones, as you probably know, used when they started out, they were performing a lot in Richmond. Yeah. And they had a lot to do with Richmond. Now, Crowley had lived in Richmond during the, during the Second World War, which was only 20 years before. And a lot of people told stories about Crowley and, and they heard about him uh, through that. But probably the key point was the arrival of Kenneth Anger on the scene. Uh, Kenneth Anger um, was a Crowley devotee. He's a filmmaker. You know about Kenneth Anger? I do indeed, Fil- yeah. He's a filmmaker and um independent filmmaker he, he was uh, from he lived in he was from california he came to england first of all in the 50s um to make contact with crowley's authentic friends like uh, lady lady harris frida harris who was an artist and it, to meet the uh, other members of the old oto ordo templi orientis and he got to know all sorts of people and his films were projecting ideas of crowley um and in the 60s, he came back again. He was a guest at the York House at Fourthampton Court, where uh, Crowley, Crowley's friend Gerald York used to live, an upper-class landowner from Gloucestershire. And Anger turned up and wanted to know as much about Crowley as possible. And he met Mick Jagger in London uh, in the 60s and Marianne Faithful. And they became friends of the eccentric Kenneth. And I think Ken inspired them quite a lot. And uh, Jagger did the music for one of um, of, um, of Angus' films, Invocation of My Demon Brother, I think 1967. Mm. Uh, Jagger did the soundtrack for that. And, of course, out of that, you've got all that, their Satanic Majesty's request. So, also, you've got to look at the jazz, rhythm and blues scene, Alexis Corner. Um, those people in London in the 50s, they knew of Crowley because he was, he'd been part of London in the 30s and 40s and he'd, he'd really got around and he was known in the clubs, he was known in the pubs and uh, he had a reputation as a distinctive English sage, you know, and there weren't any, there's nobody like him, you know. If you feel that it, reality is not exhausted by the poetry of Dylan Thomas and you haven't got to, made the magical spiritual connection there's only one man to, in that period who was within living memory to go to and that was this extraordinary eccentric alistair crowley and the scenes of the london rock scene in that period of course they're all overlapping i think somebody called it a freemasonry of guitarists at one point you know jimmy page jeff beck um you know jimmy hendrix and all of that and of course and john lennon was reading books on spirituality when he was a student. He was very into it. Bill Harry told me that. It was his friend at uh, Liverpool College of Art. Um, uh, Lennon was very much open to the Crowley thing. I think in his last interview with Newsweek in 1980, he quotes, do what thou wilt, and he puts it in his own way. He said, do what thou wilt, but don't hurt anybody, which is a nice uh, sort of wrapping up of the love is the law, love under will yeah. doctrine. And of course, he put Crowley on the cover of Sergeant Pepper, which has excited a lot of people. Lousy photo of Crowley, I think. <laughs> they always put that horrible one on where he looks like, uh, you know, um, a character from from James Bond, whereas I think James Bond himself actually ha- was modelled partly on Alistair Crowley and his uh, spying activities. Um yeah, so you had the rock scene is the art world. The art world had all these people in it uh, at that time in the 60s and the 50s. People like Lady Harris, K- 
Kenneth Anger. And, and, they, and they created circles of interest. And the rock scene in the 60s was a bit of an ar- a rock aristocracy. You know, they met at the St. James, St. James's at the right clubs. All, there had always been a, 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 an upper class interest in Crowley, right, right from before the First World War, when he arranged um, probably the first sound and light psychedelic show ever known. Mm. Uh, which was called the Rites of Eleusis. I mean, I think he was ahead of Pink Floyd there by uh, 30, 40, 50 years, you know. It's, it's so... Um, that was in 1912. He put on 12 shows with dance and music um, where there was a potion passed round. It might have had a bit of laudanum in it or something. And people were invited to join the trip. And this granny took that trip in 1912. There are wonderful stories in Crowley's diaries of them getting very high on on uh, small amounts of hashish, which they were burning in the flat in Victoria. And this is 1910. And the description is very much like Mary Poppins, you know, tea, tea, what's it, tea, tea parties on the ceiling. Yeah. I love to laugh, all of that. And you think of the dancing on the roof. Uh, all the, there's a bit of that there. There's a very, I mean, I, Mary Travers, who wrote the Poppins books, of course, was inspired by Gurdjieff. But Gurdjieff Crowley, there is an overlap in, in, in theory and, and, uh, and belief. So Crowley was, uh, Gurdjieff has become respectable, Crowley still isn't respectable, and that's the other point to what I want to say in answer to your question about the 60s, Crowley wasn't respectable. That makes him a counterculture hero in itself. Crowley wrote at one point, you can be either respected or you can be respectable, but you cannot be both. And that chimes in with uh, a lot of uh, youthful suspicions of the nature of the world. You can be respected or you can be respectable, but you can't be both. Crowley wanted to be respected, and he didn't give a damn about being respectable. Yeah. Um, and that, that willingness to, to live to the full, of course, captured the imagination of the intelligent and sensitive youth of, of that period, as it will today when people get to hear about it, you know. But we haven't had one decent movie about Crowley, not one decent movie, not one decent documentary about Crowley. They've all been sensationalist, misleading tripe. And uh, I've wanted to make a film on Crowley for years, but do they want a film about the real Crowley? No, no, no. They want a film that's, uh, Sunday, you know, Sunday newspaper. They, they don't want, you know, we're having this conversation. Why, I sh- if I'm with great respect, I sh- this should have been on Radio 4, you know, <laughs> BBC. Um, it's, it's, it's like you're allowed to have your niche circles, but um, otherwise you're going to tread on uh, toes. So rock and roll used to be, and for many still is, the dream of a, of a countercultural spiritual urgency about being alive, celebrating life and reality and uh, Crowley chimes right he is a, he is he wouldn't have liked the hippies in the sense of the lack of discipline slovenliness he was he was a stickler for appearances you know mm. um, manicures uh, presentability but he was terribly eccentric in dress I mean when he was wandering around Berlin he got an orange knickerbocker suit I'd love to have seen that delightful yeah and he had wonderful selection of hats he would wear at different occasions very much like uh, if you think of Salvador Dali, perhaps, or, mm. or Orson Welles, that's the level of artistic, um, delightful eccentricity. There was nothing dark about his appearance at all. He, he, was, he was extremely... He, he wore great ties and cravats and loved colourful, rich colours, as you see in his paintings, which are proto-psychedelic. I don't think I'm 
completely out of time to say that psychedelic means soul expanding uh, and uh, soul enlarging. And he was definitely psychedelic. That's something I wanted to speak about because his dress sense and his art certainly was psychedelic before its time. And yeah. he was a big influence on, I suppose you call him a psychedelic guru or whatever, Timothy Leary. And I mean, he openly yes. spoke <laughs> about the inspiration of Alistair Crowley. What can you tell us about that? About Leary? About Leary and some of the other names from the psychedelic era. I mean, we've already touched on some of the musical side of it, but uh, p- people who were, for the first time, again in the 60s and 70s, who were talking about openly experimenting with psychedelics and drug use and that kind of thing. I mean, Cr- Crowley's name comes up again and again when well, these people because, speak yes, about it, influences. It, it, his, his, he should come up again and again because he was a pioneer in the experimentation and analysis of psychedelic agents. He's one of the very first people to uh, to take what was then called Anhelonium lewinii, mm. now better known as peyote, yep. um, and use it experimentally as part of rituals. And he would very carefully write up the results of his experiments in scientific manner. And so he was he was having complete psychedelic trips in Venice in 1910. And um, and I think I, uh, he was he was he, he was very interested in the effects of hashish and wrote a, a notable um, I think 1905 if I remember right the psychology of hashish very one of the earliest texts analysing the states of mind uh, that can be induced through these then perfectly legal uh, apothecaries products he used to get his stuff from Winneray's the chemist in Piccadilly. Um, so for him, it was about experimentation. He always uh, used very small doses. Uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't binging, uh, as people sadly are te- prone to do today. Mm. And he saw, but he saw these substances as related to the old science of magic, which was: do these substances in- enable people to know their minds better? Well, very different to the idea today. Like, oh, I lost my mind. I was out of my mind. Complete. Well, Crowley was never out of his mind. He was always into it. <laughs> I think of. I was thinking of um, a comment that William Blake's wife, Catherine, once said to a visitor, who said, "You know, how do you get on with your husband?" And she, she said, "Well, I don't actually see it. He's always. I never see him. He's always in paradise." <laughs> and uh, Crowley spent a lot of time in paradise. Uh, sadly, a lot, uh, a lot of his experimental notes were destroyed by English customs in 1920s. Um, absolutely appallingly, they just oh Crowley, yes, he's the one we've read about in the paper, and they destroyed his books and notes. So he'd spent ages doing deep experiments with uh, with psychedelic agents. Um, but uh, of course, he 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 would have he would have been interested in lysergic acid, but. Uh, I think having taken peyote, he had no need for that. He didn't miss out anything, I think, in the internal sense. Now, the other question was something about who were the sort of psychedelic period in the 60s and Timothy Leary and all that. Now, how, how did Timothy Leary get to hear about Crowley? I, I, would, I would have presumed it was from the Pasadena Lodge, uh, the Agape Lodge, which was established by uh, a small group of Californians in the 1930s um, and which became a kind of radix for Crowley's ideas on a very, very, very small scale. And it was actually run by an Englishman who'd, who'd gone over there. He was a, 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 one of Crowley's first uh, disciples, to use that word in inverted commas, I think, because um, these weren't slavish people. Mm. Um, 
And he, they founded a lodge, which really meant they met in somebody's house uh, upstairs and they built a, a little temple. And uh, they were investigated by the FBI in the 40s um, because a local do-gooder had said there's a sort of car- cadre of subversives operating on, I, was it Winona Boulevard? I forget. I think it was Winona Boulevard, Pasadena. And um, the, people, the FBI came along, searched the place and said, oh, it's a love cult, which when Crowley heard about, he was hated the very notion of a love cult. Mm. Uh, for him, that he, he thought that they were doing, they weren't getting it right. If anyone could even get that impression, but of course, where Crowley was around, people did start to feel sexually free. There's a great story about John Lennon being on a tram in San Francisco in the 70s. That just him sitting there, I think he was with Harry Nelson at the time. Just him sitting there, people on the bus started snogging and, and caressing each other. That his actual presence gave people license to overcome or ignore any inhibition. I think Crowley had that effect on some people as well. You know, just, yes, go on, you can, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, and for those that might laugh at that idea, I mean, just just think to yeah, your own lives. they haven't experienced it. Exactly, and so many people <laughs> have so many unexplained effects on others. It doesn't have to be sexual, but I mean, just take charisma or stage presence in the arts. Somebody can go up on stage and they just have this, this, this magical power over an audience and there is no reason in the world why that can't be translated in a sexual sense it doesn't have to be on a stage and I think um, I think that's a very very interesting point that you've raised there because that is absolutely entirely possible and it's something worth exploring I think yes it's what they, the in Hinduism is called the Jivan Mukta uh, is a liberated spirit and as Gerald York wrote very convincingly and I also got from his son John when we met uh, Crowley was in to meet him was to meet a Jivan Mukta. It was it was a liberated spirit and was a libera- liberating experience. And people who had to put up with it, some of his personal eccentricities and annoyances over the years, uh, those that stuck with him did so because they were getting this liber- liber- liberty spirit. And by that I don't mean the spirit of libertinism. I mean a divine spirit of can do, mm. can see. The world is a bigger place. Crowley used to say, always fun where, um, ne- sorry, never dull where Crowley is. Never dull where Crowley is. I'd like him to be remembered in people's minds in that way. A person who wasn't dull and that lit up, literally lit up rooms and lit up lives. And the only people who f- were offended by him were people who were offended by everything. You know, they're always offended by anybody who speaks their mind or anyone who sings a song or brings music into life. You know, the, the, the inwardly repressed, because they themselves are repressed or have been so, of course, are, are nervous in the presence of such a being. But such beings make life worthwhile. You know, it's, that's what makes life interesting. But there's always plenty of people for whom life would be much better lived in a most uninteresting way. You know, and... Um, we are talking life, art, culture. We're talking about, about being, being alive. That's what, that's what we're all trying to uh, make the most of, I hope, or should be. And uh, Crowley was a person who was trying to make us more alive. That's, that's, that, that was the, the game. And uh, to do that, you've got to break, you've got to go to the barricades, you know. Mm. The barricades of the mind I'm talking about, <laughs> not the petrol bombing ones which end up just creating a bigger mess than you started with. So it seems like Crowley had a marvellous capacity to unlearn that which we should unlearn. And I think this applies certainly to today more so. And he, he was quite prophetic 
in that he, I suppose he's, he spoke about the machine and where things were headed. And I mean, we are living in that. To him, it would have been a dystopian society, and to a lot of people, it is now. But that's yes, exactly where we are now. Second, yeah. Yeah. So um, he, he was quite prophetic in that sense. What were his views, Toby, on death or life after death or, or what happens to us when we leave this earth then? Because that's not something that's all that well documented. People just tend to get too caught up in the satanic side of it. Mm. Yes, the, um, the, the, act, the activation of the hidden God in man is what we're talking about when we talk about uh, the daimon in the Socratic sense. Socrates, mm. daimon, is, is the, also the Pythagorean non-ego, that part of the, that, I would say, that root of the human being that is not uh, confined and overwhelmed by space and time. That's, it's the activation of that reality that is the aim of, of, of all this, is what we're actually talking about. I, I say that because uh, originally, of course, Satan, the image had a, a positive conception of, of a bringer of light, Lucifer. And only through uh, church teaching did this get amplified into he becomes Ariman, the principle of evil. Mm. And uh, But the, these were all developments of rival priests fighting it out over the meaning of... <laughs> <laughs> whose whose temple was going to be the most successful? <laughs> the politics of belief. The politics of belief. Yeah, but the, the what was the other question that you were saying? Yeah, you want about life at yes. Yeah, life after death. Well, Crowley uh, didn't have dogmatic views on this subject. Um, he obviously didn't subscribe to the um, the sentimental view that we we're going to heavenly green fields, harps, and all that stuff. Uh, he was very impressed by the reincarnation doctrine which he saw in his many travels around India in the first few years of the 20th century uh, where he he lived very close to the earth he even played the part of a yogi at one point he went into the temples made sacrifices found himself at ease in the Hindu culture from which he learnt and understood and wrote a great deal so for him Reincarnation was the way he understood that the, essen the essence of being trans is transmitted through time. But he, as I say, when he was asked specifically on this, he said, you must you come to your own conclusions. I don't know. He didn't claim to have an authoritative knowledge, um, only that in his own experience, it seemed to him most likely that whatever he really was would seek a new vehicle to carry on the good work. Now, on that basis, you could say Crowley is, is almost certainly still with us, you know? Yeah. Uh, but how would one know? Now, people who've thought they were reincarnations of Crowley tend to have mental problems. And I, I'd have thought that uh, that would be one of the reasons why perhaps we don't remember previous lives. Yeah. We find it very difficult to live the one we're living if we remembered all the ones we had before. Mm -hmm. You know, memory almost full, as Paul McCartney said. You know, it's uh, it would be hard to it would be hard to pin down Crowley on the subject of life after death. He believed in spiritual life, and spiritual life was eternal. But as for the individual, as we know them, he knew that the ego is the obstruction to all progress. Um, the idea of the self, when we talk about a selfish person, somebody who's overwhelmed by their self, you know the kind of person so overbearingly themselves, but they're not themselves. It's the image of themselves which has taken over. Yeah. It's that that they worship. 
Now, Crowley said that you will never get anywhere in spiritual development until you have dealt with the ego. Now, he would say annihilate the ego, which is an Indian way of putting it, and very much in the Buddhist sense. I personally think that's dangerous language to put before Western people, for whom the experience of the self is not a dream. It's a very concrete experience for us. Uh, I think if you were been brought up in a Hindu culture, Buddhist culture, it, they have a different uh, conception of, of, of themselves in reality. Uh, the Western person, um, to survive anyway, needs to, uh, Brian Wilson, hang on to your ego. Uh, but deal it, But you must learn to deal with this ego and see it for what it is, this image of yourself. That is surely going to die, which is why we grip onto it so 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 cunningly, so constantly. We, we hold on to our ego uh, because, because it is a, a fatal, it is a, it is a mortal um, phenomenon. Mm. But the ego is not the holy guardian angel. The ego is not the same as that uh, spiritual power which a person can become aware of, which transcends the self. Now, don't all rush off and try to transcend yourselves. I've been, I've been uh, on that road since I was... Uh, consciously on that road since I was a teenager. And uh, it isn't something you're going to overcome because you... You had a particularly uh, profound meditational experience or even a drug experience or you just walked the hills and suddenly left your body or something. Yeah. Uh, dealing with ego is a lifetime job. One might like the idea that when you come to the end of hopefully a long and fulfilling existence, fulfilling anyway, that you'd be happy to leave the ego. <laughs> Crowley used to be sick. He'd, he used to refer in his diaries to AC this and AC that, AC Alistair Crowley. And he had this idea of himself as somebody who was, uh, you know, um, that he'd be, he was sick of. He'd, go, he'd get sick of Alistair Crowley. And, yeah. You know? I mean, that's why we like meeting new people, isn't it? Because don't we get too sick of ourselves. Well, I think yeah. that's exactly it, the nail on the head. And I mean, a lot of people go mad if they spend too much time with themselves. Yes, yes. That's because they're mad. <laughs> 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 but uh, no, it, it's, it's a valid teaching. We, we, we need to look at this ego thing, and so, especially in the current so-called celebrity nonsense. There's constant worshipping of little images. Mm. It's pathetic. You know, these little selves dotted around. Hey, look at me. I'm A-list. Are you? I think you're A-listless twit, but never mind. <laughs> Why don't you find out who you really are? You don't need to be celebrated. And anyway, you're not. You're kidding yourself. We don't celebrate celebrities at all. We, we crucify them. They're there for our entertainment and, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, our uh, amusement. It turn, don't turn yourself into somebody else's toy. And that's what a lot of young people... My daughter's generation, they are seeing so many of these images and this horrible use of the word icon all the time. Yeah, yeah. He's iconic. No, he's not. An icon is a Greek word and it means a painting or image which is a door to God. These aren't icons. <laughs> any very, very far from it. To be honest, they're when, the antithesis of yes, anything of iconic. Course, as, as most truthful things turn out to be. Andy Warhol, when he turned Elizabeth Taylor and Marilyn Monroe into icons, he used to attend a, a, a Greek Orthodox church, and he got this idea that America worshipped her stars to the extent that, in a more mature culture, was reserved for saints. 
and that was the origin of of the of the iconic <laughs> irony of the icon in Warhol, which has been totally misunderstood because the, the, the sheep have simply, yes, they have yet again mistaken the icon for the image. Mm. And this, this is a, Crowley would have a lot to say about this, of that I'm sure. Um, uh, there, there, there are very few icons in the world. And, and just because something is known and repeat, and this image is repeated across the internet, doesn't make it iconic, it simply makes it repetitive which ultimately must lead to boredom and the end of boredom is always despair. So let's leave all that alone. Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction because that is the area where the, li- the lines get blurred generally. Oh, Satan never sleeps. <laughs> the latest, <laughs> there's always a new thing, the, new, the, latest, uh, the latest misunderstanding, which, of course, now, go, the, as they say, goes viral. And, and, and one man's heresy becomes an interna- international disease, you know, whether it's Koreans dancing in peculiar ways or whatever it is, mm. uh, the latest... Uh, nonsense but luckily these things are very superficial but you can suffer from saturation developing legacy then because it is a developing legacy i think when we refer to crowley it's not just a case of Do you right- really think so I, I i rather hope so but i'm not i'm not entirely sure. well i i certainly do i think that um we we referred to the machine a couple of times there and i think the machine has become more and more overt particularly in a post 911 world and there are a lot of people I, I don't like the word awakening but there are a lot of people who are i suppose developing to a certain extent with regard to their own spirituality and their eyes are opening to what's going on in a material sense and with regard to the control structure and the machinery and that dystopian narrative i suppose that that crowley kind of alluded to or or prophetically spoke about and I think as more and more people become aware of it and particularly the youth of today and I'm encouraged by that because while on one hand we do have this uh, the iconic imagery and the farcical celebration of celebrity culture we also have a subculture emerging which I don't think has been allowed to emerge in the past quite as readily and I credit the internet with this and the access to alternative viewpoints and information that means that people are able to look a little bit deeper and far more easily into what exactly it is that they care to to look at. So let's take Crowley as an example there. While in the past, people would only have been exposed to him through whatever books were out there and a lot of people didn't read and a lot of people continue not to read. You couldn't get Crowley books. People would, literally would not stock them um, uh, for fear of evil. That is, that is a fact. When I, when I was uh, a young... A teenager, you, there was only one, one or two shops in London that you could find a Crowley book. And in my local library, the, even the biography of Crowley had a warning from the library on it that it was not to be taken out by anyone under 21 years old. Now, that, that was only in 1970s. And that says yes, it all, really. I mean, look at how much it's changed. For example, we can type in Alistair Crowley into, into Google or Amazon or whatever it might be. And, and look at the crap at, that comes up. Look yeah. at the amount of crap, but then of course, look <laughs> at the amount of stuff that's emerging, such as the work that you're doing, that is the polar opposite of that. And I think people are learning to disseminate. I mean, when the internet first became popular, I think there was everybody had a tendency to believe absolutely everything. But there there's a necessity to be able to disseminate information now. And people are getting a little bit better at that, or I hope they are anyway. Maybe it's, it's the optimist in me speaking. But I really do believe that a legacy or anybody's legacy now 
can change. So you might have had somebody, I don't know, back in the first century BC and it was set in stone. This is the legacy. That can all change now because of ready access to information. And because Crowley has has been such a fascinating figure for the last hundred years, I really believe that his legacy is something that has become almost organic in a sense. And I do think if we had this conversation again in 10 years' time, we'd be speaking about an entirely different legacy to people who might have spoken about him in the 1960s. I, well, I think that's very encouraging to hear you say that. I, I, I wish we, we, we need to repeat you. <laughs> we need to get you duplicated. <laughs> because I, I want to hit that is, a, that is a very exciting thought. I've had it myself. There's a very unbelievably positive and indeed magical side to the internet, which uh, I'm, I, excites me. Uh, I'd, lo- I'd almost wish I was 16 <laughs> and starting new because I, I, my daughter seems to have total facility with every, anything electronic. It's like she was born to do it. It's yeah. bizarre. Yeah. Um, whereas for me, you know, it's, oh God, it's another thing I've got to learn, you know. <laughs> mm. But one thing I will say, and I, I want to say is that you will never over, this is wonderful, but never forget the book. The book is vital. If you don't read, your mind doesn't get real exercise. I couldn't agree more. A lot of more. the internet is distraction. And it's also not good for your eyes to constantly read stuff uh, on an electronic screen, however it's illuminated. Um, books are, are, are the, 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 the holders of wisdom and always will be. And they've never come up with a better format. It's easy to hold, get through, flick pages, etc., etc. So I hope our... Our wonderment at the technology doesn't blind us to to the importance of feeding your mind with 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 good books, well, beautifully written things. Absolutely. Yeah. Plus, a solar flare a solar flare isn't going to wipe out a library. <laughs> That's a very good point, isn't it? Well, you know, I mean, yes, you think of the Library of Alexandria being burnt down uh, by Christian fanatics, if you remember the, yeah. the history, and uh, what we lost totally and utterly irreplaceable. Uh, but I, I'm a great. I, I more and more I've become more aware. I always believed strongly in books, uh, but now with the internet, uh, as an adjunct mm-hmm. to reading, the internet is matchless. It's phenomenal. It, I, it's astonishing. It's all happened so very, 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 very quickly. And you're right. It is producing a new kind of culture. And you talk about legacy. I th- I think you're right. I think the legacy uh, the legacy of Crowley he knew would not come in his lifetime. He was pre- he wanted it to. Of course he did. Any anybody would wants recognition and understanding in your lifetime. It's miserable and lonely to be ignored. Hmm. Um, but he knew that he, he said you know all the th- all the things that have happened to me um, will testify on my behalf in the times to come when people are, are not afraid to look into the facts of it i think that time has come or is coming certainly as you say there's been a big difference since the 60s i mean i almost got sent down from oxford because i had a draw i'd done a drawing of crowley quite a good one i thought (laughs) which i put on my door and uh, was greeted as though satan had taken up residence you know (laughs) and um oh yes there there was a move to sort of get me out you know there was uh, because again, it was the Christian Union, the theological um, aspect of the college, which was very sensitive to to this. Yeah. Uh, nobody else either didn't care or were quite interested in the subject. I think people are you know, given given chance and choice. Um, I think people really are, and I think what you're talking about Ireland's very interesting because in Ireland, you know, the power of the priesthood is on the wane, yeah. and and this has all kinds of um, potentials. 
for uh, you know change and enlightenment and all the rest of it. Well, um, definitely, because it's almost like that spiritual block that was enforced by the Catholic Church in Ireland has left people with a, a freeness of sp- spirituality that they are looking for something else to fill with and they're far more open to exploring new ideas and new concepts. And I think that's a positive thing, ultimately. I think it is. And, and, and people are free now to choose and to explore, which is very good. You, you could say, I mean, I'm sure a spokesman of the Vatican say, well, this, yes, but all that's going to happen is they're going to get misled into this Gnostic stuff and they're going to end up, to, um, you know, out of their minds, mental hospital, you know, all, all the horror stories, you know, the demons will get you if you leave the fold. Yeah. You know? Well, maybe you, <laughs> maybe the demons are in the fold. You know, and for the sake of your health of mind, you need to get out. And uh, it's it's a it's a, it's a liberation, of course. In all spiritual adventuring, there are risks, uh, and uh, that has always been the case. Um, but not if you not not if you you hold fast to the truth, the and the best your ideals. You know, if you stay with it, what you know to be be right in your deepest self, then you you won't go far wrong. You may have some interesting adventures. And what's life? What is life? But an, uh, should be an interesting adventure. It can't. It, what's the point of being born if it's not an adventure? Well, it, it, exactly. It is anyway. I mean, it's about exploration. It's about discovering secrets, as you mentioned there. And only then can we develop and have a good time. Well, yes, pleasure is the, sort of the byproduct of doing the right thing. Mm, I agree. You know, I agree. I always loved what Crowley said. He says. Uh, a yogi gets more pleasure from moving his leg than a millionaire from a week in New York. I'd like to put that one to the test, but it's a very fine quote. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to experience both sides there. Well, yogi, yoga means union. So if we're talking about a true yogi, is, is he's in union with God. Mm. Now, if you were in union with God, I should think every everything that happened to you would be of a pleasure far exceeding what a millionaire can get out of New York with the largest expense account. Exactly. I think that, uh, that refers back then to us transcending ourselves or certainly transcending our material selves. Yes, yes. We've got, I think culturally we've got to, I think the human race has reached, uh, reached the absolute, you know, the, the, end, the, well, the vanishing point of materialism. It was always a fiction, but uh, I mean, the only thing that's going to end this, this insane fundamentalism is, uh, is a real spiritual awakening. Um, because that is really the gap that all these things are trying to fill. I think it's the perfect time, Tobias, to mention your books. There are many of them. The current one, of course, is The Beast in Berlin, and that's why we're talking about Alistair Crowley. Um, how can people get their hands on your books? Because you've written so extensively, and I think there is a lot of information. I haven't read them all yet, but there's a lot of information that's extremely valuable to people, certainly in the context of what we've been speaking about. Yeah, I wanted. To, I I don't know if I wanted to to begin with. I appear to have produced a kind of encyclopedia gnostica. Yeah, I, I always wanted to cover all all the main uh, features of uh, spiritual philosophy and uh, history, and get it right, and in a straight and honest uh, and and informed and hopefully stylish way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wrote poetry before I wrote prose, and I I think that. That is what real writing is about. So I've, it's 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 the, the quality of the writing. I hope matches the the grandeur of the material. I think I've covered most of the areas. Although my new one I'm writing at the moment hones in on 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 aspects that I haven't looked at 
so closely before. You could you get them obviously you can get them in uh, through bookshops or on Amazon. Just dial Tobias Churton or my website has a, a fair amount of information. TobiasChurton.com. Um, or you may have a friend who's, you know, and all that. You know, they, yes, they're not they're not that difficult. You don't have to dig them up. <laughs> but um, I think that's again. You were talking about the internet. You yes, you've got to look in a way. Um, you won't find my books in Smiths. Right. Uh, do yeah. you have Smiths in Ireland? W H Smiths? Do they do they operate over there? No, but most Irish people would be very familiar with Smiths. Yeah. Yeah. W H. You they're not in Smiths. Um, although the, I've seen I've seen a fair number in the bigger Waterstones uh, bookshops. And um, I've been dealing a lot recently with American publishers, and, and American publishers don't even notice the UK particularly. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, I have no trouble getting my books in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> some of the recent, some of the, I did a wonderful book on John the Baptist uh, a few years ago called The Mysteries of John the Baptist. And that, you can't get, you, you can't get it in this country, but you could certainly get it through Amazon. No problem whatsoever. But not everyone likes buying on Amazon. And, and I don't think the publishing trades realize that yet. <laughs> there are still people who like to browse in bookshops and, and uh, actually pay what the book is worth. <laughs> no, I, I think so. And from my own point of view, while I buy plenty of books on Amazon and online, there is nothing quite like losing yourself for an afternoon in a bookshop just being surrounded by the physical material. Like, I'm not a big shopper. I don't like shopping. I hate shops, actually, in high street stores. But when it comes to bookshops, you can leave me there all day, every day, and I'll be happy. It's a joy, a joy for me to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully more people experience the same. I suppose to summarize, and I'm going to put you completely on the spot, Toby, and I'm going to ask you to sum up the life and work of Alistair Crowley in one sentence, if you can, or one phrase, even. Crowley, a man fascinated by the mystery of life with the courage and intellect to enter into that fascination fully. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Tobias Churton, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you on Alchemy and thank you for joining me. I look forward to our next conversation. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. <laughs> Alchemy Radio.
If you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio, remember we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are extremely grateful for any help you can offer. We put no fixed cost on your donations and every little helps. So, for example, if you could spare even the price of a cup of tea every month, it would go a long way towards helping to keep us afloat. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. Thank you to everybody for your recent help and support. Of course, we couldn't do it without you. Our next guest is Michael Craig discussing his book Secret Mars and the anomalous Red Planet. It's a show I'm really looking forward to and hopefully you can join us for it. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?